Welcome to Studio Two. I'm Avi Wolfman-Aaron. And I'm Cherry Gregg. Coming up today, Avi, we're talking all things artificial intelligence. AI. AI, and with that presidential election coming up, there's a lot of concerns about deep fake being used campaign to ads. campaign ads. And um, so we have Pennsylvania State Representative Tarek Khan, who is co-sponsoring a bill to prohibit AI in campaign ads, who'll be talking about if it's that used in like a misleading way. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, we're also going to talk with Ethan Mollick, who's a Wharton professor, and we had Ethan on earlier um, to talk about AI in the classroom. Now we're going to have he was him talk. So good, and he too. was great. Yeah. So nice, we had to have him twice. Um, we're going to talk with him today about AI in the workplace and how people might already be using it hush hush to help them do their jobs a little Secret better. Secret AI um, users. Companies, some embrace it. Some say don't use it at all. We prohibit you from using mm -hmm. AI in the workplace. Uh, Chat GPT. We're talking about like generative AI here. Anyways, we know you have thoughts on this topic and we would love for you to email us. Studio2 at org. You can also call us, Cherry. The number is 888-477-9499. Does your employer know mm -hmm. that you're using AI? Maybe they encourage it. Let us know. Yeah, lots to talk about there. Also, later in the hour, we'll hear from our Curiosities correspondent. I like that that title, Matt Gillum. It's really he catching went, on. It is. He went out into the streets in South Philly and took a course in astronomy. But first, we have... Some news for uh, from our area. Let's get to and, it. And um, you probably heard all the brouhaha about discussions and investigations into claims of anti-Semitism. Well, there's some news on that front. First, Temple University is the latest local institution to face a federal probe following allegations that it failed to properly handle complaints about anti-Semitism and Islamophobia. Um, the editor-in-chief of a Virginia-based national conservative news website, they filed a complaint against Temple, alleging that Jewish students are increasingly feeling unwelcome, unsafe, and discriminated against. Other universities, Avi, in our area that are on that list and being investigated include Drexel mm -hmm. and Rutgers Universities, Lafayette and Muhlenberg colleges mm -hmm. in the Lehigh Valley. They're also on the department's list of about 100 open investigations into colleges. It's a lot of open investigations yeah. into colleges. The Temple one is a little hard to parse because all we know of, at least publicly, is that there was a complaint lodged by this kind of activist uh, group yeah. in Virginia. Not clear if any Temple students mm -hmm. have lodged complaints that led to the opening of an investigation. Obviously, an investigation being open doesn't mean it's concluded anything. It just yeah. means it's open. Um, of course, we all know Penn was already yeah, under investigation. Yeah, we talked about that. It's been a lot from of time this, on that. From the OCR, mm -hmm. the Office of Civil Rights. Um, that investigation has now been closed, and this is also new, um, because there's a concurring lawsuit that kind of covers the same ground. So the OCR said, eh, okay, let's just go with the lawsuit. We don't really need to investigate further um, using our investigative tools. So it's yeah. it's not, I mean, it's sort of a... Kind of procedural thing, yeah, I guess. It is. It could be refiled though if yeah. that case stalls out or doesn't move forward or what have you. So it's not a hundred percent over, but it's over for now. Shall we stay in the world of higher ed now? We should. Okay. Uh, Temple University making more headlines today, and this was a really interesting story yeah. in the Inquirer. I will shout out Tom Avril who wrote it um, about a scientist at Temple named Domenico Pratico who got a lot of money to study Alzheimer's disease. Mm -hmm. He's a researcher. Um, 
at the same time he was getting this money and this attention, there were some concerns being raised about the quality of his research, including whether some images in the studies yeah. that he had published um, were sort of reproduced from other studies or were misrepresentations of what he'd actually found. Um, and anyways, there's now kind of an open debate about the quality of his research. He says the mistakes were due to a graduate student that mm -hmm. he's like suing. Um, not We don't have a lot of public details about that dispute, um, but there are people around the country, in fact, who have raised concerns about his research, even though he's kind of seemingly a star researcher getting quite a bit of money and attention for his work. Yeah. And it does speak to some larger issues, it Jerry. It does, it does. And it seems to be part of a trend. Um, in 2023, more than 10,000 research papers have been retracted that year. 10, that thousand. is a record high number of papers that have been formerly withdrawn due to deliberate fabrication, major errors, or other serious flaws. And, I mean, we talked about this issue a little bit, this but we should probably talk about it a lot more I think and more in depth because I think it's a show. there's a lot of pressure to to get funding Publish and to do perish. this research and to get published. And um, earlier today, I was talking to you. I used to be the com notes and comments editor in law school, and I had to check journals. And I, I you know, when people submitted articles yeah. to our journal, I had to fly spec their research. Every citation, we had to go back, find that citation, review it, make sure that it supported the argument that they were yeah. making in the paper. Because you didn't want any type of articles going out there that weren't because properly once it's in supported a journal, and researched. Yeah. Once, exactly. Once it's in a journal, people sort of take it as gospel, right? Yes. But what we're finding more and more, and mm -hmm. there are people, including there's a mm -hmm. guy at Penn named Joe Simmons, you can read about him, mm -hmm. um, who's one of these people who sort of investigates, does forensics on yep. these published, peer-reviewed studies and yep. finds all sorts of bad data. Sometimes it's fabrication, but sometimes it's just data distortion you know what i mean like yeah. cherry picking data points to draw a conclusion that the study itself if you look mm -hmm. at it holistically doesn't really support there's this idea of p-hacking for instance yeah it's a whole topic and i do think we should do something we should on do it something on this because, because it's academia real yeah. is being rocked right now by some of these plagiarism scandals and also scandals around data manipulation in studies. And somebody's not doing their fly specting, okay? Someone, somebody's not checking this stuff out. They should have asked you before they published <laughs> those journals. They should have gone it's to It's tedious Charity work, Greg. but necessary work. Absolutely. Um, you know what's not tedious? What? Monopoly. Uh, it's not. And Dauphin County, well, guess what? They're getting their own Monopoly game. Like with their own little local yeah, locations local on it? Yeah, local locations. Okay. Pittsburgh and the main line, they, all, they have one. And there appears to be one from Philly from like the 90s. But We think. Yeah, we think. We couldn't we really trying nail to it research down, this. nail it down. Yeah. But, there might have been a limited edition Philly Monopoly at one point. Yeah. But either way, we have to update it. We do need to update it. But shout out to Dauphin County. In case you didn't know, that's the Harrisburg and Hershey area. So the landmarks on that game will probably be the Capitol Building and Hershey Park. But back to Philly because it's always about Philly. Sorry, Dauphin County. I mean, County. you know, if we have, we need one. We need one with the Love Park sign, maybe? I don't know. I could, I could see Love Park making it. Well, the railroads are simple. You do Broad Street, L, Regional Rail, maybe yes, Trolley. Yes. So those are your four mm -hmm, railroads. You got that mm -hmm. covered. I think you need City Hall on there somewhere. You need the Art Museum building. You probably do Pats and Genos, and people are going to yell at me about that. But, you know, Monopoly is about sort of the the surface level representations exactly, of the city. Exactly, exactly. Probably put those on there. And um, if you had the little tokens, you could probably have a cheesesteak on there. 
maybe a little oh, rocky statue yeah, yeah. yeah like a little you know who would you be you know what i mean i would be uh the soft pretzel oh yeah you you got to have and i'm a little salty yeah you you can throw you definitely have a little salt in there i'm a little salty and, and maybe i could be you know like um some water ice cherry flavored water, water ice. ice yeah okay i dig i dig there you go i dig so anyway uh, okay hard shift as the 2024 campaign season heats up we're going to see a lot more political ads yeah. and some lawmakers here in pennsylvania are concerned that these ads could include ai generated deep fakes State Representative Tarek Khan, a Democrat representing parts of Philadelphia, is co-sponsoring legislation to prevent the use of artificial intelligence to misrepresent a candidate in a political advertisement. We spoke to him about this earlier this morning and about what's in his proposal. Before we talk about your proposal, let's talk about the problem. What's the problem in the space that overlaps between AI and campaign advertising? Well, right now, there really is no regulation in AI in political advertising. So, for example, earlier in this election cycle, there was an ad that the DeSantis campaign had, and they used deceptive images of former President Trump with Anthony Fauci. And also- To depict something that didn't happen. Yeah, it was was, was kind of like- brought those two together like close together so they were like kind mm. of uh, hugging each other uh, which never happened and uh, also a super PAC for uh, Governor DeSantis also did a generative AI uh, thing where there were, it sounded like Donald Trump was reading was saying something but it was actually a tweet that was generatively being read by a voice that was made to sound like Donald Trump or something he wrote but never said exactly so right now there's really no regulation for courts to sort of decide how that's handled uh, if a campaign takes issue with it. In Pennsylvania, there's certainly no regulation for it. Uh, So this would actually uh, sort of set guardrails for that. And so let's talk about, because right now there's only a memorandum. We don't know what the law will actually look like. What are you and your co-sponsor envisioning? So what we see right now are civil penalties, sort of a sliding scale if it's local race, a small municipal race, or a federal race, something that where there's a lot of money. Um, so there would be actual civil penalties. There would be fines for campaigns or PACs that deceptively produce this content. And yeah. so like, how, let's do some definitions, though, sure. because I get the idea, right? The idea mm-hmm. is we don't want people misleading voters with this technology that can be very, very deceptive yeah. if, you, if applied well. Yeah. Tarek, Avi, and Cherry, we don't. But some, some politicos, they, they do, especially right. if it's a, a tight race. And if, you know. Right. Totally get that. The question is then, for me, how do you define, A, what's a deep fake? How do you define what is misrepresentation? What is satire or parody? Like, how do you actually create a law that can get at that stuff? Yeah. Well, you deliberately write it. And that's what I think we've we've done. I've worked together with actually a bipartisan group of legislators to do it. Democrats and Republicans are introducing this together. And so the bill is very narrowly focused on campaign ads that are – using mimicry of uh, uh, an impersonation. So it's if it is a gener- using AI technology. Uh, so this, for example, I always think about the Conan O'Brien back in the early 2000s with, with Bill Clinton, and it sort of you had the guy, Robert mm-hmm. Schmeigel, talking at Bill Clinton. This wouldn't apply because that's not a campaign ad. That is 
free speech. So this bill is actually targeted for campaign advertisements. Lots of campaign ads already before we ever heard the words AI, artificial intelligence, were really, really deceptive and continue to be. And they're yeah. distortions of the truth, straight up. Mm-hmm, Maybe yeah. they're not outright fabrications, but they are distortions of the truth. Yeah. Why legislate distortions that emanate from a machine as opposed to the ones already emanating from human pens all over the country? Yeah, the difference, obviously, is that you know, when I was growing up, it was very easy to speak spot a fake you could you could tell even in movies that where they're where they're spending millions you know hundreds of millions of dollars you're like that doesn't look real the ai generated content is getting so sophisticated that it is almost impossible to tell what's real and what's not and when it comes to elections we have to make things as fair and as possible to make sure that our elections are safe and secure um, if someone is lying about their opponent's record you see it's one person that's saying something about another candidate or it's an advertiser that's saying or an announcer saying it but when it looks like the actual person themselves is saying something that they did not actually say you're saying this overrides our natural bs detectors it renders them useless yeah, it's it can be it can be a helpful thing AI generated content, but it is so hard to tell what's real and what's fake um, that this this is those those necessary guardrails for that process. Quick follow up to Avi's question: What about the First Amendment? I mean, could you yeah. see some challenges? And are you thinking about that as you draft oh, this bill? We're very specific about narrowing this specifically to campaign advertising, um, which is sort of a, it's a very special thing that has special regulations. And we also narrowed it to, to 90 days before an election. So it's very clear this is an election cycle. And got to ask you this because this you're you just said it. I mean, this is usually regulated by the federal government. Yeah. Are states the place? Are states the ones that should be doing this? Should there be a push to get the feds to step up and, and get into this? I mean, it would be nice if the feds would step up, if the FCC would step up and have um, regulation. Um, it doesn't look like they're actually inclined to. I think earlier last year they declined to actually take this up. Um, and that's a, we, we have a role in our state to make sure that, you know, when, when someone's running for election, that people have honest and accurate information to go off of. So they're making clear decisions. Um, that's why we have a state government to help uh, set those guardrails. And so we, we feel like it's, it's very appropriate to do it in the state government. And that was PA State Rep Tarek Khan, a Democrat who represents parts of Philadelphia. Coming up next, Cherry. AI at work. Are you using ChatGPT or other new technology? To do your job. To do your job. Okay, that they pay you for. Are you worried about how it could change your workplace? Email us now. The email is studio2 at whyy.org. Very interesting discussion coming up for sure. Stay tuned. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. This is a Studio 2. I'm Cherry Gregg. And I'm Avi wolfman Aaron. This uh, might have gone a little under the radar, mm-hmm. but earlier this month, Pennsylvania Governor Josh Shapiro announced that his administration would start using AI in state government. This is a first-of-its-kind 
pilot program, Cherry, that will allow state employees to use a form of chat GPT to complete certain tasks. Very circumscribed. Yeah, it is. And the Shapiro administration says this pilot version of chat GBT will have enhanced privacy and cybersecurity measures in place. But the move to incorporate artificial intelligence into government work is pretty historic. Sure is. Especially yeah. after Congress banned use of chat GPT at the U.S. House, they cited privacy concerns there. Yeah, which way are we going here? Which Sometimes way? it's hard to figure it out, but mm-hmm. it did get us thinking. Should we be able to use AI at work? What are some of the tasks that AI could be helpful for or could make us do more efficiently? And is there a line where mm. using AI or a tool like ChatGPT could be seen as unethical? To help us parse through all of this, we've brought back the one and only Ethan Mollick, Associate Professor of Management at the Wharton School and Academic Director of Wharton Interactive. Ethan, welcome back to Studio Two. I am thrilled to be back. Yeah, and do you, friends, do you use AI tools like ChatGPT at work? Do you have concerns about about AI tools at the workplace? Call us with your questions or comments. The number 888-477-9499. You can also email us at studio2 at org. And so, Ethan, I wanted you to just sort of react to this announcement that Pennsylvania state workers can now use a version of ChatGPT. And so far, they said you can use it to copy edit, updating outdated policy language, drafting job descriptions. Just your reaction to us incorporating it here in the state. So I think um, first thing is people are probably already using it. So like (laughs) bringing it in-house is not necessarily a bad idea, right? Whether those policy guidelines work in the long term is a big question. I actually spoke to someone at one point who wrote the policy for a major bank banning ChatGPT use, and she wrote it on ChatGPT and emailed (laughs) it to herself from her phone. Um, So I think people are probably already using it, but I'm, I'm glad to see the government experimenting with it because I don't think there's really a choice at this point. You can't really hold back this tide. Right. And I think one of the things that we heard from you last time you're on is that you're not necessarily saying Mm -hmm. it's good or it's bad. It's more that it's coming. So to ignore it or to try to ban it or squelch it is ultimately going to be fruitless. You still feel that way when it comes to something like government work. Yeah, I mean, I th- look, the bad effects of people using this in ways that violate privacy or create issues are going to happen one way or another. That kind of cat is out of the bag. So the question is, how do we do the good stuff with it? Like, how do we use it to make people's jobs better? Uh, you know, when people actually in experiments where we have people use ChatGPT for their work, they have two things they feel. They get uh, nervous and they get happy. Uh, nervous mm. because they're worried about their job getting taken. Mm-hmm. Happy mm-hmm. because they outsource the worst parts of the job. There is not anyone in government who loves writing, re- updating outdated policies. Right. I can't imagine anyone was like, yes, I want to do this. That's why I got into government. Right, yeah. exactly. So those people are probably really happy that they can automate a process that was unautomatable before. Yeah, and, and quick follow-up to that because they were very specific in this announcement as to the type of task. Are there tasks that make sense using a tool like ChatGPT? Yeah, I think that there's a bunch of stuff that's kind of low risk, right? Mm -hmm. And that's a thing to start with. But then it starts to become, well, if you're an expert in a job, how much of your job can you automate? And what's your incentives to doing that? There's a lot of bad parts of our jobs, everybody's jobs, that the AI probably could do. Do we want to do it? That's a big question. Mm. I want to like maybe give people a framework because there's folks out there listening. They've got a job. Uh, Maybe they're doing it right now. Mm -hmm. Um, And they might be thinking, okay, here are my tasks. I've got maybe 10 basic tasks I do every day, every week, every month. Which of these are the most 
automatable using the technology we have right now, how would you sort of give people a framework for looking at their own job and making those determinations? So I actually break things down to four categories of work. So mm-hmm. there's stuff you don't want to automate, either because it can't be automated right now or because it, um, it's important it's done by a human, it's important it's done by you. And then there are a small category of tasks that will be growing over time of things you could actually automate. Most tasks, though, that we do at work fit in what I call either a cyborg or a centaur category. We see this in work. Centaur category. Centaur, half person, half horse. <laughs> These are people who divide the work really clearly between, like, I hate writing emails, but I love doing analysis. I'll do the analysis. The AI will do the emails. Got mm. it. And cyborg work is a little bit more blended. Like, when I was working my latest book, like, I would have the AI, if I got stuck on a page, I'd do, do give me 10 versions of the next paragraph. I almost never used that information, but it would help unstick me. Or I'd say, read these papers for me and summarize them and see if the way I'm describing them in the book works well, or read this from the perspective of a casual reader and tell me what you'd think. So that's sort of that blended work. So I think you should stop, don't think about it necessarily as automate or not automate. It's automate, augment, or don't use. Ah, okay. That middle ground is important. Interesting. Yeah. And I think about when I was an intern as a high schooler and a college person working at television stations, one of the jobs I was given was to log tape. Now we use and that's a like tool. a tra- transcribe. Yeah, transcribe tape. Yeah. Like we'd watch it and have to log it with the time on the side. Very mundane, very boring work. Now we have online services that we use and do it in minutes. I mean, does that, and for a task like that, that makes sense. But if you use it in your job, something people pay you to do, does that in some ways make you less valuable? Well, that is the giant question, right? So what's happening right now is people are doing that. They're just not telling their bosses, right? That every time I talk to groups, I'm like, raise your hand if you secretly, certainly everyone's doing classes. So, you know, if you're secretly doing work in surveys, about 60% of people have said they've used AI in ways they have not told people that they're using it for. So the real question is not, are people using it? It's, are the companies getting the benefits and learning from it? Or have they made everyone so scared of saying they're using it, they're just using it secretly? So there's people at work that are looking, and we were joking, we were like, yeah. oh, yeah. Somebody, Bob, is doing great. All of a sudden went from not a great writer to an excellent writer and is getting kudos and promotions because they're using an AI tool. Yeah, there are secret cyborgs in every organization. (laughs) And your goal is to incentivize them to reveal themselves. It's very Blade Runner. Okay, so then what should the companies be doing? Because it does seem like some companies, their reaction has been no one use it. And maybe they're really good at policing their employees. Maybe they're not. Um, but what would be a more effective strategy? If you if you start from a place of, well, my employees are probably using it already, um, then should I just ask them how they're using it? Should I mandate that they use it? I mean, what should I do? So I, I've seen some pretty radical stuff, and I'm actually pushing fairly radical solutions in this stuff, because in most cases, your incentive is, why will you not show people you're using? Well, you don't want people to realize that you're, the nice emails you're sending are actually being written by AI. You are probably worried that you know maybe you get fired because it's against policy. Maybe people will think you're not less valuable. Maybe they'll think you just give you more work to do. Yeah. Maybe they'll fire your colleagues. So I've actually been pushing companies to like have a ban, say we won't fire anyone for using AI for two years for replacing their work, and we'll just give you a like insanely, a grace period. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, and an insanely large cash prize at the end of every month. Whoever automates the most of their job, like literally, just slide over a suitcase with hundred thousand dollars, and you'll save money in the long term. Now I've looked at that as an employee and said, "All right, well, you just set me up for a cliff in two years. I'm going to be I out know. on my butt like, in two years." I but, mean, uh, you know, or make it five. Say we'll never do it. I mean, <laughs> you know, I the, the thing is, companies have control over this. So if you think you're, you're the thing your employer wants 
to do is downsize you, you're never going to show them. If you think they're going to use this to make your job more interesting, to take away the parts of your tasks that are boring, to do more stuff than you did before, then you'll be incentivized, right? Yeah. So it's it's sort of a fight between workers and, and companies. Yeah. Very interesting. If you're just tuning in, we're talking about the use of artificial intelligence at work, tools like ChatGBT, maybe other tools with Ethan Malik, an associate professor of management at the Wharton School and academic director of Wharton Interactive. Do you use AI tools at work? Do you have concerns about them being used in the workplace? Call us with your questions or comments. The number is 888-477-9499. You can also email studio2 at whyy.org. Chip says that would be a no. As a writer, I'm already challenged through the day with offers by various entities wanting to do my job for me. (laughs) And this is sort of like a follow-up, not necessarily to Chip's concerns, but thank you, Chip, for that comment, but just sort of are there reasons to be concerned? Like, because are there privacy concerns? Are there issues with trade secrets? Do we know what OpenAI or the other tools are doing with the information we're feeding into ChatGPT. So there are lots of reasons to be concerned. I think privacy is not actually in sort of the top list the way it might have last time we talked because now every one of these companies has privacy features available, right? So OpenAI, you can turn off training on your data. You know, again, you have to trust companies, but you're setting stuff to the internet all the time, right? Um, You know, you got to trust Amazon to put stuff in the cloud too. Exactly. So like there is that privacy concern that was a really big deal six or eight months ago. Every company knew, every AI company knew, like if we don't make people feel good about privacy, they're not going to use our system. So there are now HIPAA compliant versions that you can get at a hospital that meet all the laws and requirements. So it's less of a concern than it used to be. If you're a personal user, there's a little button in ChatGPT. Uh, If you click on the bottom left corner, you can actually turn on and off data privacy there. Mm. So it's less of a concern than it was. Um, but there are other reasons to be concerned about AI other than privacy. Can you get into some of those real quick? I mean, so, you know, we were just hearing from Chip who's worried about people sort of automating his job. I mean, that's a genuine concern. Yeah. We, we, the, we don't have a lot of data yet, but there is a paper that was done looking at the freelance, at a big freelancer market where people hire freelance workers and finding that after ChatGPT was released, there was a big drop in the number of people being, you know, 20%, something like a 15% drop in the number of job offers out there for writers. And similarly, when uh, some of the AI art tools were released, there was a drop of, you know, 16, 17% Already. for, wow. you know, graphic designers. So there is, like, there are effects here. Like, and we have to be thinking about those things. This is not, you know, it's neither all upside nor all downside, but I, I, I would be concerned about those things. I want to read a comment now from Lisa who says, my sister is a coder and is always using AI to figure out the best way to write code. It saves her so much time and work. That's the upside, right? One thing that makes me think about, though, Ethan, is this idea that in the past there were people who were really, really good Mm -hmm. at writing a lot of code really fast. And they probably got paid more than their coworkers who were slower um, and maybe not as good. It does seem like this sort of like flattens um, the the dynamic a little bit between what were like the good workers, the valuable workers and the less valuable workers. Is that a dynamic that's playing out? And if so, how does that change the way people are going to be compensated? That's a really good point. I mean, so first of all, it is an almost universal finding. I did a big study at a large consulting company. We found a 40% improvement in quality of output from those people, you know, 12.5% faster, like all these big numbers. Um, and 
just like every other study, we found the same effect. People at the bottom half of the skill distribution did got a bigger boost. They got a 40% boost. Yeah. People at the top half got like a 15% boost. Yeah. What's actually happening is it sort of moves everyone to the 80th percentile right now. So mm. if you're a really good coder, uh, you know, but but that's, you know, then you still get the advantage. But that's also a short-term thing, right? It's because they're not really using the AI in a sophisticated way. So the AI does a lot of really good things. It's very possible that people who are better coders will get better benefits. Or maybe there's just people who are magic AI whisperers and they'll do right. better. And all of this kind of depends on how good AI gets. I mean, I can't code in Python, which is like a common programming language, but I've written maybe 200 Python programs in the last week thanks wow. to the AI doing it for me. I just say like, I want to do this thing mm-hmm. and it does it. So it is going to mix up a lot of, of those issues of incentives too. Yeah, there have been studies that's kind of looked at how much AI is is sort of helpful. Like, because there's certain... Um, you know, human ingenuities that if you, if enhanced by AI makes you even better. And I'm thinking about knowledge work. Like if you're an attorney or a consultant and you do certain work and you need to, you know, use independent thought and research, but AI could sort of like enhance that. Can you give some examples of how like you can use AI to sort of help you be better at work that maybe is not replaceable? Yeah. I mean, so you know, the thing to think about work is it's like a bundle of tasks. You're not one thing at your job, doing many things. So there are mm-hmm. parts of your job that you can boost or give away that will make the other parts of your job better. So, for example, for better or worse, uh, AI is better generating ideas than most people. So we actually, there's actually a nice controlled study that was done at Wharton, where I am, um, and it looked at uh, compared Wharton MBAs and undergraduates in one of the top innovation classes, had them generate ideas, had the AI generate ideas, and of the top 40 ideas as voted for by other humans, rating them on how much they'd be willing to buy the idea. 35 out of the 40 came from the AI, only five from the humans. So like, if you're really creative, you're still going to have more creative ideas. But if you are somebody who struggles with idea generation, you should be using AI to help you come up with ideas because it will help you be better at that part of your job that you're not, right? Mm-hmm. If you're, uh, you know, I, I have students who English is their third language or they never really went to a school district that taught them how to write very well. And now they can write in perfect English. So it kind of supplement their ideas are still their own, but it's yeah. supplemented, right? So I think it's going to be a balancing act. There's a lot of, it gives you superpowers, but it also, there's some danger of what it takes away. Interesting. Uh, Wanted to read a comment here from Nick, uh, who said, there are several tools we started to integrate into our processes last year. It helps us with managing data and creating new tools for our own clients. It is the absolute future for efficiency and being able to grow a company. Wanted to piggyback off of Nick's comment here, and we're talking with Ethan Mollick about AI at work, generative AI in the workplace. So if you were... In a position like Nick, working in a company where you're using these AI tools on behalf of clients to make whatever product you're giving them better, what should be the rules around disclosure? Like, Mm. do you owe it to your client to tell them, hey, this copy is AI generated? It is a really interesting and hard question, right? And it's hard in a bunch of ways. And we've encountered this already in schools, right? Which is, okay, so... If I'm turning an assignment that's 100% AI written, that is definitely sketchy, right? And we can sort of set up a rule. Mm-hmm. But what if I put my essay into the AI and say, do you have any suggestions for improvements? Is that cheating, right? I use Grammarly. I don't say that I'm using a spell checker. What if I say, here's the outline for my idea. Do you have any improvements? Can you help me come up with the outline? Can you help me punch up this sentence? So it starts to be a little hard to say, do I, you know, what is AI and what is human work, especially as you start to work together in yeah. augmented ways that we talked about? So I think there is an obligation under some, you know, many circumstances. But then the question is, you know, are you saying, passing off the writing as your own? Does it matter? And I think we're going to have to, you know, 
we're all kind of word people here, right? You're, you're you know, journalists, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. And I think we're used to the writing ability, you know, speaking ability, those things being highly core, like things that we judge people based on. Yep. That's going to change because I don't accept anything in my classes that isn't perfect English anymore because why wouldn't I, right? Everyone's going to do perfect writing at this stage. It's interesting. Um, and so it's you know, a useful exercise to learn how to do it. So I think that part of the issue is you should disclose. It's obviously ethical to do so, but I think it's going to get very confusing about what's disclosable and what isn't. You know, yeah, you start putting a note on everything saying, I used AI for some of this. Yeah. Right. right. And, and that's interesting. And it also takes me to this point because earlier today we talked about deep fakes and AI political ads. And I just wonder because AI treats um, false information and, you know, accurate information the same, right? So if, I mean, what types, because it, it could literally roll in inaccurate false information into certain documents and it it would take a lot of work for you to sort of parse through to make sure everything is accurate so it's like why use ai in in certain tasks so all right so really smart point because on top of that we know that no one parses it through so there's a process we have there's a research that i've done with uh, some of my colleagues at harvard and elsewhere that shows that people fall asleep at the wheel as soon as you ai is good enough you just stop like you could fact check but it's really (laughs) annoying so nobody fact checks anything right um and so it's convincing anyway so that's already a problem Mm -hmm. now that hallucination rate that error rate is dropping ai is getting better at that so the sort of question i i keep contemplating is when is it more not that it has to be the most accurate, but it, when mm-hmm. is it more or less accurate than the best human you could talk to at that moment? Right. Mm. So it's not as good, you know, as a doctor. But if you have no access to medical help, is it better than not getting that help? If you don't have access to a tutor to help you with things, is it better than Googling something? So I think part of the question is like, what are what's the yardstick? Is it human or is it, you know, best available? Is it Google? It's a hard question. Mm. Uh, if you want to join this conversation we're having with Ethan Mollick about AI in the workplace, uh, give us a call, 888-477-9499. You can also email us, studio2 at org. Jane from Wynwood wants to know, Ethan, as AI takes up more of our work, does a four-day work week mm-hmm. become more likely? And when something you were talking about earlier is this idea, I think, of of opportunity costs. Like we spend time writing emails when we could have spent that time doing some other task. And if we can outsource that task to AI, maybe we can, you know, spend more time on these more creative tasks. I think this this brings up another point of maybe we can just spend less time working all together. Is that a possibility? I mean, that, that's that been the big march of progress that we don't talk about as much, right? Like, yeah. we work a lot less than we did 100 years ago. Yeah. Like, there's been a steady decrease in how many hours people work over their lifetime, even though we live longer. So, you know, the positive view of this is we figure out ways to adjust to jobs, right? We realize that jobs are not our entire lives, and we figure out ways to do more with less. You know, there's negative sides of that too, right? Do our does our pay get cut? Is mm-hmm. this actually happen? Is this only the haves get to do this and the have not? You know, we don't know the answer. So part of the question is AI is out there; it's happening. And by the way, this genie can't be put back in the bottle, right? At this point, it's not even just open AI. I can run an AI on my phone or home computer that's as good as the original ChatGPT that came out last year, and mm-hmm. no one's going to ban that or take that away. It's impossible. So we're now in a position where we have to start thinking about what this means. And the AI companies won't have the answer to that. That's us. So four day work weeks is a possibility. What do we want to do about people who might lose their jobs? How yeah. do we think about skills? A lot of big questions. Yeah. That's, yeah. Uh, that's I want to read, a, get a couple of these emails in. We have an email 
from uh, Susan who says, I tried using ChatGPT one time at work for some copywriting. I feel too lazy to learn how <laughs> to use it. Shout out to Susan. Even though all I had to do was input a basic prompt, I had to do a bunch of editing and I'm too controlling to let a robot do my work. Feels not worth it at this point. Nikki Nika says, I love it for first draft, so helpful for any writing, but I have a huge concern about the biases. It's just replicating many of our worst biases. Be on the lookout and think critically mm. when you're reviewing those first drafts. Um, I got to ask you about training a little bit because does it make sense for employers to sort of like maybe invest in training employees on using and sort of so they can extract and make their employees the most efficient as that they can? Yeah. So prompting does make a difference and in really weird ways. Okay. So like, for example, mm -hmm. um, there is some, you know, if you uh, say like um, you really can do this or say my career depends on you getting this right, you get 8% more accurate answers um, out of ChatGPT really? than if you don't. Yes. Um, <laughs> there's some evidence that uh, it gets lazier in December. Uh, if you tell if it's May, wait, wait, wait. it actually the, performs the, the better. The AI gets lazy. Yeah, it produces less <laughs> less output. If it, those yeah, we got to explain that. Explain like that. Because, well, yes, because it's trained on here. Like we we start to go on break in December, and it's possible wow. we. You know, there's an ongoing theory that the data has you know it's picked up. This AI is piece. on Christmas break. Is that what you're what? telling me? It, yeah, and so if you say it's May, you actually get better, like more longer <laughs> results. But like and tell like telling it to take a deep breath and think this through results in better answers. Hmm. It's very weird. So you talk to ChatGPT. See, this is training for me, Avi, because I'm like, we so you talk it, to yeah. ChatGPT like it's a person. Well, so there, yeah, I mean, it's not a person. Very clear to do this, but it's trained on human language. And yeah. I, I so I actually think, and there's some evidence to support this, that people who work with people do a much better job with AI if you than people than coders. Coders mm. tend to get very frustrated with AI. Using it for coding is one thing, but to write code with it, it works like a person. It makes errors. It messes up. It has biases. If you're used to managing people, though, you're like, oh, yeah, of I start to learn biases, what, it's, yeah. what it's good or bad at. Yeah. I start to be like, okay, I trust you on this and not on that. Mm. And you and so working with a lot is the answer. Not do, like doing one prompt, but like just getting to know this system as like your intern that's freely available to you is almost the better way to go on these cases. And then you understand what the biases are and what's good or bad at. But that takes time. Ten hours is my, my mm. line. And the other thing I would say just to the first um, writer is you have to use the what's called a frontier model. Like you want to use the most advanced model. If you're using the free version of ChatGPT, you're making a mistake. There are better ver better free versions out there than free ChatGPT. And GPT-4, which is the advanced version that you have to pay for, mm -hmm. is also free at least some of the time through Microsoft. It's 10 times better. So like if you're like, the writing is not that great, it's not that smart, that's probably because you're not using the most recent models, which are much, and, much smarter. And we're going to have to get you to give us this, which ones should we be using? Like, yeah. first of all, because I'm, I'm like, I don't know well, anything about you say about for them. through Bing, essentially? Is that the so? So the, the, the most advanced model in the world is the same one that's been the most advanced for about eight months. It's GPT-4. And GPT-4 is available for pay through ChatGPT+, or through Microsoft's Bing, for free, if you, huh. it's in the purple creative mode. So you'll oh, see we talked I, about this. Yes, last time. Uh, yes, 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 yes. And then, but but later this, you know, in the next month or two, hopefully, Google will be releasing Google Ultra, uh, Bard Ultra, which is as good as GPT four, and then we'll start to see a lot more GPT four competitors this year. Will that be free? Uh, that we don't know, but hopefully it's been free before. I want to get uh, one more email, and this is from Heather, who says I'm in HR and I use ChatGPT for a lot of formal communication. 
maybe even writing this comment. You never mm. know. Uh, designing training programs, creating policy, coming up with recognition ideas. The AI still needs to be guided by a person. I review and edit each prompt for accuracy and pertinence to my specific company, but it saves hours of time that I can utilize to better serve my employee base. Thanks for that comment, Heather. Just a minute and a half or so left, Ethan. I wanted to talk about the types of jobs that are most under threat. Uh, you know, Heather works in HR, mm-hmm. a white collar job. Um, we, you talked before about haves and have nots, but I have read that maybe some of the folks that made out really well during the Industrial Revolution and its after effects aren't going to do so well in, in this wave of technological disruption. How do you parse that? What types of jobs do you think are, quote unquote, safest and, and, and least safe? So there's a whole bunch of studies that use this very large database called ONET that breaks down every job into all the parts of it, right? And all of them look at overlap with AI. You can't say AI will replace it, but you could say your job overlaps with AI. And there is a direct correlation between how highly paid your job is, how educated your job is, and how creative your job creative your job is, and how much it overlaps with AI. So it very much is, you know, usually automation starts with dirty, dangerous, repetitive jobs. This is starting with intellectual, creative, highly educated, highly opposite. paid jobs. And so the like, I, I, you know, my my job, business school professor, out of the well, I think it's 1,064 jobs on the list, I'm number 22 or 21 for, <laughs> mm-hmm. for most likely. Now that's overlap. So what I hope is this lets me. I'm transforming the way I teach to teach better as a result of this. Right? Overlap doesn't mean replacement. But I think that it does mean that it's going to have an effect on our jobs, right? And the more highly paid and the more, you know, writing and the more other stuff you do, that there's like 40 jobs or so that are not overlapping with AI. And those are, um, you know, professional athlete, uh, dancer, roofer, uh, mm. ditch digging. Um, and so, you know, it's an interesting... I get into roofing. It's, yeah. Uh, yeah. I, although I spoke to a roofer and they're like, oh yeah, but I use it to send out all our proposals. <laughs> yeah. So maybe not even go. roofing. They're yeah. even working that oh in there. There you go. That's a great place to end it. Uh, thank you so much. That's Ethan Mollick, Associate Professor at the Wharton School. Uh, Ethan examines the effects of artificial intelligence on work and education. Thanks so much for your time. And coming up, if you want to do a little stargazing in Philly, no need to visit a museum. We're talking about sidewalk astronomy after this short break. Stick with us, Lastica. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Welcome back to Studio Two. I'm Cherry Gregg. And I'm Avi Wolfman Arendt. The temperature lately hasn't really been conducive to strolling around town. But if you get inspired, bundle up and head down to South Street in Philadelphia. There is a fairly regular pop up that's expanding minds and perspectives. For free, Mm. weather cooperating, of course. It's sidewalk astronomy. And despite all the city streetlights and high rises disrupting the darkness, one man is using a telescope to remind people that the sky still puts on an amazing show if you just look up. Studio 2 Curiosities correspondent (laughs) Matt Gillum has more. It's a clear and cold night as Brendan Happy camps out at the corner of 6 and South. A nearly full moon hangs in the sky, adding a silver sheen to the walls and sidewalks lining the street. Through his rounded glasses, Happy watches for a mark. If you see people looking up at the sky, it's going to be an easy sell. He springs a question on some pedestrians. You want to see the moon? Sure. <laughs> One, it's just like... easy sell. <laughs> 
The sale made, Happy launches them and whoever else is interested on a tour of the cosmos by way of his street-side telescope. A look through the eyepiece offers a journey of a couple hundred thousand miles to the moon or several hundred million miles to the gas giants Jupiter and Saturn. There's a common response when people peep through the lens. Whoa! This is so neat. Whoa! Oh my god! I mean, this is just beautiful. You gotta see it. This is like a once in a lifetime. No, this is actually like nutty. No, that's actually nutty, bro. Yo, this shit is crazy! Yo, can you Wow! Oh my gosh! That's amazing. As he tells his audience facts or stats about what's in focus, Happy can't help but smile as he adds something called sidewalk astronomy to South Street's entertainments. It's a pretty simple concept. Armed with a decent telescope, Happy is bringing the observatory to the people. He says the mission of sidewalk astronomy orbits around offering a view of the planets and the moon in order to share something that people aren't going to stumble upon naturally. He may be just one guy, but on social media, he goes by Philly Moonmen. That's because Brendan started offering views of the big white orb in the night sky with his brother Bill back in 2018. In February of that year, Brendan visited his brother in Philly. Bill just happened to be outside with a pair of binoculars when Brendan showed up and looked through them. He scanned the sky, landed on the moon, and his life changed. Seeing the mountains and the craters on the moon with my own eyes it was beautiful, first of all, and I guess I thought to myself, wow, I can't believe I've lived my entire life without ever seeing this. And I imagine that that was the same case for, you know, most others, especially those who live in light-polluted places. After taking in the topography of the moon, Brendan and Bill both started soliciting people to look up that night. The Philly Moon men were born. The brothers gained a following and their amateur astronomy project grew, but like so many things, COVID put the kibosh on it. In 2021, Bill left for grad school in Europe and Brendan went to the West Coast. After heeding the call of California, Brendan returned to Philadelphia last year. Like the very first night back in Philly, I brought my telescope to South Street and I looked at Venus and I just kind of felt whole again. It's no accident that one of the first things he trained his telescope on was Venus. Cloud-wrapped second planet from the sun outshines everything in the night sky except the moon. Even the lights of Center City can't blot it out. Think of the towering Comcast Technology Center. It's essentially... A glow stick right up in the sky. That's Bill McGinney, a dark sky advocate who works with the Pennsylvania chapter of the International Dark Sky Association. They, well, I mean, I think you can figure out what they're for. McGinney lives in Philly, but he's not in the core of the city. He says even a little distance makes for a richer sky. I live over in the uh, Roxborough East Falls area, and we have about a 100 stars on any given new moon you can see naked eye. From information I've heard from a uh, fellow advocate who actually lives in South Philly, they count around 30. The reason for the discrepancy is light pollution, an untold number of bulbs or blinding LEDs blasting their brightness up to the heavens. Ken Volchek works at the Adler Planetarium in Chicago and has extensively studied light pollution. It is, uh, in a word, devastating. He's done multiple experiments with high-altitude balloons at night to capture light emissions and says publicly available data collected by satellites looking at darkness on the Earth only goes back about a decade. In other words... We're only just beginning to know what losing our night is going to do to us and do to our world. When it comes to total light emission, Volchek dove into the data and Philadelphia is about as bright as Denver overall. When you score emissions by area, it's another Denver-Philly tie. 
Meanwhile, both L.A. and New York are more than 200% brighter than the city of brotherly love by both metrics. Chicago apparently has its high beams on and is more than 300% brighter. All that light turning the night sky a murky mauve is doing more than blotting out the view of the Milky Way. We've had four and a half billion years of evolution on Earth, all entrained to a day-night, day-night, day-night cycle for that long, and then literally in less than 150 years, we've lit up the night without much regard to its effects. While science and medicine work out just exactly what we're doing to ourselves by erasing true night, Volchek says setting up a telescope, even in the heart of a city, offers something valuable. Why look up at a night sky that is just a pale glow? You know, there's nothing to see. Sidewalk astronomers give you that opportunity to say, like, wait, there's something there. And then you're like, oh, my God, and then what else am I missing? Back on South Street, the people peering through Brendan Happy's telescope are struck by what they're seeing. Pals Sandy Sovin and Charlie Silva stopped and looked. This is neat. This adds to my night a lot because you couldn't expect it. <laughs> and it's so cool because, I mean, I don't think you get to see the, the Jupiter every night. Sandy was more taken by the moon. It was awesome. It was beautiful. It was like very, it looks fake, but I know yeah, that right. it's out there. <laughs> Another city stargazer on this brisk night is Lily Gardner. She and a friend were on their way to dinner when they spotted the telescope. It's super cool. I think that this kind of stuff is so cool to be like for free for anyone to access and see. After taking a look, she reflected that it was a great way to like learn more about us and our place in the universe. And I know when I look through it, I get an existential kind of (laughs) feeling or thoughts that are good to have, you know, but it's also just really beautiful. As for the Philly Moon Man sharing the wonders of the sky, Brendan Happy may be in his late 20s, but he's convinced he'll be doing sidewalk astronomy for the long haul. I kind of already know that this is something that I always want to have as a part of my life. Weather permitting and clear skies overhead, Happy says he'll be out on South Street most nights enticing people to just look up. For Studio 2, I'm Matt Gillum. Oh, that Matt Gillum. COVID kibosh. Murky mauve. Murky mauve. I, I just, I love it. He can the sling language. some words. That <laughs> was our cur- Curiosities correspondent and WHYY host, Matt Gillum. And Sherry, that's it for our show today. That is. But before we go, mm-hmm. can I tell folks, be sure to follow WHYY mm-hmm. on all social platforms and download the show wherever you get your podcasts. You can rate and review us. And that does a lot for our show and for our podcast. So please, please, please do it. Uh, and I want to say thank you to our producers. Thanks, producers. For a great week. Our producers are Debbie Builder, Paige Murray Bessler, and Andreas Copes. Joan Isabella is WHYY's audio general manager. Thanks, Joan. Al Banks engineered today's program. Thanks, and Al. From Studio 2 at WHYY in Philadelphia, I'm Cherry Gregg, and I like this music. (laughs) I'm Avi Wolfman, and I'm impartial to this music. Thank you for joining us today.